Let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to Revelation 22. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention one of, to one of, the, of one of the ushers. Revelation 22, 1 to 5, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And boy, are you going to want it. Because these are glorious, glorious truths that I can hardly wait to get to. And that, most of all, I can hardly wait to worship because of. And this entire message, I, I kept telling myself as I was preparing for this, like, just, just get to worship. Just get to worship. And so we're going to return to a little bit of an extended time of worship, a little bit, at the end of all of this, and let the Lord fill and fuel our souls all the more, as I trust that he will from his living word. We're nearing the end of our study of Revelation, and we're at the end of what it says about the holy city. New Jerusalem. And really, it's been a three-part message, if you will. I just didn't, you know, frame it that way. Part one, part two, and part three. This would be part three, but it's really been a three-part message on New Jerusalem, a three-part message on the holy city, the people of God, and the place of God for all eternity, New Jerusalem. It's what theologians call, you may have heard this before, I've certainly said it before, this is what theologians call the eternal state. What we've been talking about for the past three weeks, the eternal state, not state in the sense of a nation, but our eternal state of being, our eternal state of existence, the eternal state. It's one way of referring to all this, but I think far better is the way that Fillmore Bennett referred to it. Sanford Fillmore Bennett lived in the mid to late 1800s. And shortly after serving in the Civil War, he moved to Elkhorn, Wisconsin. He moved there and he opened a drugstore, going on to study medicine and become a doctor after previously, before the Civil War, he was a teacher, uh, quite the learned guy. He, was, uh, he studied well, studied early. His dad led the way in all of that. A couple of other, other, other of his brothers became doctors along with him, but at this point, he moved to Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and opened up a drugstore. But you also need to know that Sanford Fillmore Bennett was creative and wrote the lyrics to over a hundred hymns in the course of his life. Love this. Goodness, am I thin this morning. You bear with me and I'll get through this because this is all so good. He wrote the lyrics to more than a hundred hymns in his life and he would pen the words and then he would give them to his friend J.P. Webster to put them to music. So Bennett would write the words, the lyrics to the hymns and then he'd hand them off to Webster and he, was do, he would do his creative thing with him, and that's where the connection to this passage in the eternal state lies. Because on one occasion, Bennett writes in his autobiography, Webster walked into his drugstore a bit melancholy, a bit down. So Bennett asked him what was wrong, as you might ask somebody that walks into your cubicle or place of business or office or home or whatever. He asked him what was wrong, and Webster replied, It's no matter, it'll I'll be right by and by. And in a moment, Bennett said, like a flash of sunlight, he exclaimed, the sweet by and by. 
Would that that would make, or why would that not make a good hymn? Unquote. And with the thoughts coming in a rush, he sat down at his desk right there in the drugstore. He put pen to paper, and within a few minutes, he handed them to Webster. And Webster, upon reading those lyrics, was so inspired by them, he sat down at the desk, and he wrote music to the words. And as soon as he was finished writing the music, he picks up his violin, and he started playing, at which point Webster started singing, and in the course of 30 minutes, 30 minutes, a hymn was born. In the sweet by and by. There's a land that is fairer than day, the first verse goes. And by faith, we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by, we will meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we will meet on that beautiful shore. Written in 1868 and born out of a moment of melancholy. Talk about beauty from ashes. It became popular almost immediately as an uplifting, hope-filled hymn. And a hundred years later, I remember singing it as a kid, a hundred plus. But most important is that it expresses the essence of New Jerusalem and the eternal state, as good as any, I think, in the sweet by and by. In fact, there's something about that phrase that evokes a deep-seated feeling about eternity. An emotion that goes hand-in-hand hand with the bliss of our forever home, with our forever God, forever and ever. Hand-in-hand hand with the vision that John describes right here in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. See, if you don't agree, you follow along. Then the angel showed me the river of life, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, a.k.a. the shores, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, one and the same, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Loved ones, that's our home. 
New Jerusalem on the new earth forever and ever. The sweet by and by. That's it. The sweet by and by. The future of those who love God and hold fast. And the first aspect that I want you to see is that it's a return to the conditions, wait for it, the conditions of Eden. It's a return, the sweet by and by is the eternal state to the conditions of Eden, to some of the surroundings and circumstances of the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis. It's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Check it out here on the screen. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in, in Eden in the east, a garden, and there he put a man whom he had formed. He put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. Do you see it? I hope bells and whistles are going off. There's a river in both. The tree of life is in both. And there's a garden in both by virtue of the fruit and leaves in Revelation. It's not called a garden explicitly, but by virtue of the fruit and leaves, there's a, a garden in the sweet by and by. And that's not to say that it's a literal return to Eden, the eternal state, or a return to all of its conditions. But it sure is a return to, to the most important ones, like perfection and the absence of sin and the presence of God and sinless people. The similarities are unmistakable. Plus, plus, oh, I love this one. Both are graced with a wedding. You ever thought about that? Both are graced with a wedding, the Garden of Eden and New Jerusalem are both graced with a wedding ceremony. The first between Adam and Eve representing all mankind and the last between God and the church representing all believers. In the Garden, Eve was united with Adam and marriage was born. Marriage was born. In glory, the church is united with God and our marriage is complete. Even referring to us as a bride in the previous chapter and the wife of the Lamb. We just sang about it. So the world began with a wedding in a garden. And the world ends with a wedding in a garden. Making the sweet by and by all the sweeter. Second, it's the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. The sweet by and by is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy and to see it, I would love for you to turn with me there in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel 47, verses 1 to 12. You'll find Ezekiel right about the middle of your Bible, maybe a little after. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. If you get to Daniel, Hosea, Joel, you've gone just a little bit too far. Ezekiel 47 Verses 1 to 12. We'll go back to Revelation 22, but you cannot afford to miss this fulfillment. This passage in Ezekiel is near the end of Ezekiel's end time vision. He too had a vision of what was coming down the pipeline where he uses some of the same language as John to say some of the same things 
And man, the connections are glorious. Verse 1, then he brought me back, Ezekiel says, he brought me back to the door of the temple, he being the man in Ezekiel's vision, maybe an angel, maybe the pre-incarnate Christ, we're, we're not told. He brought me back to the door of the temple in this vision that he had, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. It's our first indication here in verse 11 that Ezekiel is speaking figuratively, speaking spiritually, because there was no source of water in the temple. None, zilch, only God, only his life-giving presence. Second part of verse 1, the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. It's a vivid description. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Trickling. Verse 3, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, 1,500 feet, and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. That's not usually how rivers work, but in this case, certainly is the case. It was waist deep. Verse 5, again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen it was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river, implying that he had been swimming in it, I think. He led me back to the bank of the river. As I went, I, as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and the other. Hello. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, that's the arid land around the Dead Sea, and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. That's the, the water of the Dead Sea will become fresh. Instead of dead and salty, it's going to be alive and new. Remember, he's speaking spiritually here. He's using physical things to describe spiritual realities in this vision that God has given him. Water flows into the sea. The water will become fresh. Verse 9, and wherever the river goes, oh, I love that, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. He says it twice, I think, to emphasize to us that it's a river of life. Obviously, it's a river of life. Just like Jesus said in John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water referring to the Holy Spirit and indicating that it's already happening. The river is already flowing to some extent. The river of life from the very presence and essence of God is already flowing within the hearts and souls of those who have received him by grace through faith. Through faith. 
We ought to be soaked to the bone constantly. And then Ezekiel says in verse 10, this gets better. I've got to stay seated, otherwise I'm going to jump up and down. <laughs> Fishermen will stand by the sea. From Engedi to Eneglium, that's two cities on the shore of the Dead Sea, it will be a place for the spreading of nets, which would have been unheard of in that day and still is in this day because nothing lives in the Dead Sea. It's dead. And yet fishermen will stand there and they will cast their nets where this river of life has flown. It's fish, Ezekiel goes on to say, it's fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea, the Mediterranean. To say that God's river is so powerful and so overwhelming, it will bring forth life from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Fish of many kinds. And once again, it's happening, isn't it? And just like Jesus said to the first disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Connecting his ministry and ours with Ezekiel's prophecy and confirming yet again that the river of God is already flowing, flowing, but not yet full, flowing, but not yet complete. Then he says in verse 11, but its swamps and marshes, the Dead Seas, will not become fresh. They are to be left for Salt, probably a commentary on the unbelief of some. And now check this out, verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not weather, wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, the very presence of God. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Just like John says in Revelation 22, a river of life flowing from God with trees on the shore, constant fruit and leaves for healing. Far from a fever dream of an old man in exile, the apostle John in exile on the island of Patmos, Far from a fever dream or something, the sweet by and by is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy starting with the ministry of Jesus. A ministry and fulfillment that's already, it's already, but not yet. Already flowing, but not yet full. Already happening, but not yet complete. Already in Christ, but not yet in glory. A river of life that's full of life in the sweet by and by. So whatever you do, and maybe this would be one of those, if you take nothing else from this message, which I, I pray that you take more than just this, but whatever you do, make sure you have it. The river of life flowing within you. Make sure you have it. Make, make sure you're in it, waiting as Ezekiel spoke about and 
knee deep, ankle deep, and knee deep, and waist deep, and, and, and make sure you're swimming. Can, can we just say it that way? Make sure it flows unimpeded from God's heart to yours so that today you're a fisherman and tomorrow you're a swimmer. Satisfied and refreshed and soaked to the bone in the best sense of the phrase for all eternity. Make sure. Oh, make sure. That's the second thought that I wanted you to see is so near and dear to my heart, and I trust will be to yours as well now. Third, the sweet by and by is the fullness of life and blessing. It's a return to the conditions of Eden. It's the full fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, and it's the fullness, a lot of F's there, the fullness of life and blessing. That's the most obvious part of this passage. It's the fullness of what Jesus promised in John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, have it completely, have it fully, life to the full. The problem is that promise of full and abundant life has been twisted in our day and age to mean our best life now, our best life now. That Jesus promised, so they say, to give us everything we want this side of glory. Just name it and claim it. Just think it and it's yours. Material things, good things, easy things, all things. It's abundant life. It's what Jesus promised. John 10, 10, they would say. Except that's contrary to the entire Bible. It's just contrary to the entire Bible. And not to mention the experience of those who wrote it many of whom died for their faith, most of whom, not that God, don't, don't get me wrong, not that God doesn't bless this side of glory. Oh, he does. Thank you, Lord. But that we also have to endure trials and tribulation this side of glory. That we also have to suffer this side of glory. It's been granted to us not only to believe, but to suffer, it says in Philippians chapter 1. Suffer for his sake sometimes as a result of our fallen world and sometimes at the hands of fallen people. So when Jesus promised abundant life, he didn't mean now, not fully, not fully, not completely. He meant that it starts now and is guaranteed now, but the best is yet to come. The fullness is yet to come. Which means no matter how good you have it, you ain't seen nothing yet. And, and most of us have it really, really good if we're honest in this room. We have it really good. We haven't seen nothing. And no matter how bad you have it, it's going to get better. Way better. Because there's going to come a day when we will meet the Lord on that beautiful shore. The beautiful shore of his life-giving river in the sweet by and by. A day when the fullness of life comes to complete fruition. A day when the blessings of today pale in comparison. A day when we take in, hear me on this, a day when we take in and drink in every last aspect of God's goodness and greatness for all eternity. Hold fast for that. And every time that we come to 
the communion table from here on out. Don't just think of it as a time to remember what God has done in the past, but think of it as a time to remember what he's promised in the future. When we will take in and drink in every last aspect of his goodness and greatness every last day. Hold fast for that because it's the fullness of blessing that never wanes. Blessing that never wanes. Blessing that never fades, never ebbs, always flows. The river of life always flows there in verses 1 and 2 because it comes from God himself. Eternal life from an eternal God. Duh. Eternal life will always flow because it's always eternal. The same yesterday, today, and forever because God is the same yesterday and today and forever as the source of the river of life. The source of all of his goodness. The source of all of his greatness. The source of all of his all for all eternity. Same for the tree of life. Fed by the river of life, it's a constant source of blessing. Does this mean literally we're going to be picking fruit off of trees? I don't think so. I think this is apocalyptic imagery, metaphors, to, to convey to us that we're going to have all of the sustenance of God all of the time at our fingertips. Yielding 12 kinds of fruit to enjoy and savor. Like, is not the goodness and greatness of God so varied in its aspects that you're surprised each and every time that you encounter it, even though maybe you've encountered it similarly in the past or certainly when you encounter it differently? Am I alone in that? So good. So good. So different. So varied. I think that's the idea of the 12 kinds of fruit to enjoy and savor. And not just occasionally, but each month it says, as in constantly. Not sporadically, but consistently. We're going to feast on the goodness and greatness of God every moment of every day. And it's going to be as if we never tasted it before in our lives. I love you, Lord. For your goodness never failing. Never once will we wonder if there's enough food in the sweet by and by. Never once will we wonder if the harvest is plentiful. Never once will we question God's blessing. Because the sweet by and by will be full full of blessing that never wanes. And, second here, full of life that never ends. Life that never ends. Verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need, we've seen this before in chapter 21, they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Just like Daniel prophesied 700 years earlier, Daniel 7, 18, earthly kings will arise, an angel told him, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom, here it is, forever, forever and ever, as in all eternity. You can put as many evers and evers and forevers in there as you want. That's the idea always for all eternity. We're going to possess the kingdom, which is why this is called the eternal, the forever state. And if we're going to inhabit it 
forever and ever. If we're going to inhabit it eternally, we must have eternal life. If we're going to reign forever in the forever kingdom, we have to live forever. Which is once again the very thing that Jesus promised, isn't it? See, all, all, all of these things begin to weave together and throw logs on the fire of our passion and our worship and our adoration and our awe. The life we receive, the moment we're saved, the life we are guaranteed, the moment we believe is a life that never ends. A never-ending eternal state of fullness and blessing with God himself. And we have it right now. Right now, we are living the eternal life that God has given and promised and guaranteed. We just haven't experienced the fullness of it. But we have it. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ through faith, through belief in him and repentance of your sin, you have it. You have the eternal life necessary to eternally inhabit the sweet by and by and soak it up forever and ever. It's coming someday. A glorious life with no sun and no sin, verse 3. No longer anything accursed. No longer anything doomed to die. Because the sweet by and by is the fullness of life. Life that never ends. And then last but not least, it's the fullness of worship that never stops. Worship that never stops. I know, I know, some of you are probably thinking, when are you ever going to stop talking about worship? Never. Because A, the Bible doesn't stop. And B, it's what we're going to be doing. If you haven't been listening for the past almost two years. It's what we're going to be doing and it's what we ought to be doing. Like the sweet by and by is the fullness of worship that never stops. Look at the second part of verse 3. His servants, his bond servants, those who are bound with him, those who are united with him, those who are in communion with him will worship him. Worship him. It couldn't be any more explicit. They will see his face, verse 4, and his name will be on their foreheads. I think verse 4 is the reason for our worship in verse 3. As we saw earlier in Revelation, having the name of God on our foreheads symbolizes his possession and our protection. His possession and our protection. In other words, we are his gladly and gratefully now and then. And he protects us fully and lovingly now and then. All of which leads, naturally so, to worship. Worship. Especially so when we're going to get, we're going to, get to see all that God has done, you know, behind the curtain, if you will, in how he's protected us right now and how he's provided for us right now and how he's prevented this and that from coming around the corner right now. Especially so then, as well as the fullness of all of glory in the sweet by and by, it's going to naturally lead to the, ex the exhortation of our praise and the exertion of our worship for which we will never get tired. Which is one of the reasons why it's going to be full of worship that never stops. Same thing for seeing his face. That too is going to lead to worship that never stops. 
That's something that hasn't been done since Adam and Eve. Seeing the face of God. Something Moses couldn't even do. Extraordinary leader and prophet. One of the most humble men, the most humble man to ever live. He, he couldn't even see God's face. And it's something the angels don't do right now, at least in Isaiah's vision. The wings covering their feet and their eyes. Plus God said in Exodus 33, 20, man shall not see me and live. But in the sweet by and by we will. Glorified man. And the result will be worship that never stops. Worship without ever averting our gaze or dropping our hands or changing our focus or being distracted by something around or a thought that enters our mind or whatever it is. It'll never stop. And when we've been there 10,000 years, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we'd first begun. Don't miss that. Don't miss the wedding. Don't miss the fulfillment. And don't miss the fullness. Hold fast. Because the shores of the sweet by and by await. Let's pray. Father, fill our hearts. Fill our hearts and fill our souls, we pray. Use these glorious truths, God, to spur us on and, and hold fast. And most of all, Lord, receive our worship. Oh, receive our worship, Lord. Forgive us, God, for following after distractions. Forgive us for critiquing minutia. Forgive us from thinking of ourselves. Oh God, forgive us and receive our worship. Be glorified in our praise. Magnified in our lives. Receive it, God, as a foretaste of what's to come when we meet on that beautiful shore.